But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Pasaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And this week we are joined by Dr. Richard McNeil Wilson, who is a research fellow at the European University Institute, as well as a postdoctoral researcher at Leiden University in The Hague. Thanks for joining us, Richard. Hi, it's super to be here. Just to begin with, one of your areas of expertise is PREVENT, the UK government's counter-terrorism initiative. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about what that is? So yes, I, I work a lot looking at the development of, of counter-terrorism and counter-extremism. One of the, the most important areas I think that I work on is around the development of, of PREVENT, which is a part of the UK counter-terrorism strategy. So with, with sort of the, the attack in, in 2005, the London bombings, the 2006 transatlantic aeroplane plot, the Tiger Tiger plot and the Glasgow City airport of, of bombing of 2007. We had this sort of big drive towards development, uh, developing a, a large counter-terrorism strategy in the UK. And they sort of developed this, this contest strategy, which has four strands, protect, pursue, prepare and prevent. Uh, when all of this was sort of developed in, in the mid 2000s, prevent, which is sort of the, 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 the more broader sort of community focused side of it, uh, was much smaller. It's sort of been described as the the younger brother of the of the four pillars of contest in the UK. But since then, it's sort of taken on a life of its own. It's become very centralised within within UK counter terrorism and now counter extremism approaches. And it's also been something that we've seen replicated within within the European models um, of responding to counter terrorism and counter extremism. A lot of the work of Prevent is is very broad in its in its approach in its understanding of, of terrorism and of extremism. And as a result, it's, it's, it's causing sort of lots of, lots of trouble, lots of controversy in the UK and, and internationally. In terms of its sort of large-scale approach, often kind of focusing on, on minority communities, on, on Muslim communities, leading to the over-representation of, of minority communities in discussions around, around terrorism and, and responses to terrorism. So that's sort of a, a broad kind of overview of, of, of Prevent as it stands. Prevent's been in the news a little bit lately because of a, a new podcast by Serial and the, and the New York Times looking at how this uh, incident, the Trojan horse affair or the Trojan horse hoax, depending on who you talk to about it, which was this incident that involved uh, fake letters being sent to authorities alleging a, a Trojan horse effort by Muslims to take over uh, Britain's schools, uh, how it informed the strategy and how it applies in schools. Uh, have you had a chance to listen to the podcast and what did you think of it? I have. I have had a chance to listen to the podcast. Um, it's absolutely fantastic. I mean, even as as someone who who works in this field, spending a lot of time sort of researching in this field, I, I, I was shocked by simply sort of how balmy the whole, the whole, the letter is, some of the, the things that happened around it, how it sort of ties into very kind of localized disputes, dispute within a school, concerns about jobs and, and how this sort of, 
has spiraled outwards and, and been sort of deliberately picked up and, and manipulated and sort of used by by national politicians in the UK. This sort of period, 2014, 2015, is a very important time in, in, in Prevent as well. So that the, the, the Trojan horse hoax sort of feeds into a lot of concern around violent extremism, developing concern around violent extremism. And what the Trojan horse hoax did and, and the way it was used, it sort of helped to kind of turbocharge um, a lot of stuff of, of Prevent and embed it within local communities more, and particularly embed it within um, educational institutions a lot more. So you had the, the sort of 2015 Prevent Duty came in in the UK, which meant that schools, it meant that hospitals, it meant that social services, it meant that prisons, all kind of manner of, of, of social services and, 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 and social workers had to embed counter-terrorism and counter-extremism approaches within their work as, as an obligation. So you had teachers having to make sure that they were kind of keeping an eye on, on, on children, uh, reporting if they, if they saw instances of extremism, having this legal obligation and legal duty to report on them in terms of, of spotting instances of extremism. Now, when we talk about extremism, it's, it's, of course, a very, very difficult term to get a handle on. And this is kind of why I find it so, so interesting to, to look at. It's a very kind of legally and discursively fluid term. I mean, terrorism, of course, is, is highly controversial, but there's an action element involved and a legally defined consequence. But when you sort of come to, to uh, looking at extremism, of course, extremism is, is not well defined. It's not defined in law. It's, it's not illegal in, in many countries. And when you have this requirement of teachers, of, of doctors, of, of social workers, of prison guards to look out for instances of extremism, it's very difficult, of course, to, for them to identify. It's very difficult for anyone to identify, even someone who's been, been working in the field for, for, for decades. So you often have this kind of reliance on stereotypes. You have this reliance on not a lot of information. And of course, naturally, it, it leads to instances of um, hugely disproportionate instances of, of Muslims and minorities um, being reported to prevent and essentially kind of facing this suspicion within within particularly places where where they are vulnerable in terms of schools, in terms of hospitals, where they can face suspicion and can be reported to prevent on, on very small, very inconsequential articulations of, of, of faith or, or discussion. Well, what do you understand to be the relationship between these kinds of state technologies, counterterrorism and colonialism? I think it's really important that we kind of look as well at the, at the global architectures of, of, of counterterrorism and how they sort of, how they interact with each other. I think there's a very important discussion that has to be had around, around the link between um, counterterrorism and colonialism. Because a lot of current counterterrorism development, the way in which counterterrorism has been developed, it's had to respond very quickly. Policymakers have responded very quickly to, to instances of violence. And they've drawn on, on the history that they have. They've drawn on, on other approaches towards, towards the subjugation of violence. And sometimes that is that has inevitably come from a colonial context. So, with the development of counterterrorism, for instance, in the two thousands, the UK drew on drew on Northern Ireland on the suppression of, of of Republican communities in Northern Ireland, on settler colonial approaches in Northern Ireland that it had developed to cast itself as sort of a leader in 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 countering terrorism. We see the same thing in in the state of Israel, for instance, who is often kind of you know, developed this this idea of of them being sort of the the canary down the coal mine in in terms of responding to to so called Islamic terrorism, jihadi terrorism, because they 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 have this settler colonial history, 
that they can draw upon. And, and it's very, you start to, when you start to look at this, you see sort of the, the very racialized nature of, of, of counterterrorism. Now, of course, in, in recent years, counterterrorism has attempted to sort of move away from, from this, this racialization and, and cast itself as looking at all forms of extremism and, and all forms of terrorism and, and, and left and right. But you still have this inherent nature that, that, that it's, it's, it's come through that process from 9-11 onwards. It's, it's drawn on, on the global racial trends and as part of that, inevitably, you still have this casting of, of, of terrorism as, as, as being associated with, with Muslimness, with being associated with Muslim, Muslim countries. So I think there's, it, it, whilst it's very important to see sort of 2001 as, as a big moment and, and 9-11 as a big moment in the development of, of terrorism, there's a very long history that, that sort of goes back that, that we can see going back many years. And, and we have to account for those long kind of racial trends that, that exist in, in different countries. I mean, in terms of the the terms that and, and concepts that are used in describing, I guess, violent actors or potentially violent actors. It was just a couple of years ago that the um, Mike Burgess, who's the director of ASIO, put the case that there needed to be a change in terminology. And ASIO now officially employs two uh, main categories, religiously motivated violent extremism and ideologically motivated violent extremism. What, what do you, is that just a, a change in, the, you know, uh, is that a superficial change, or do you think that reflects a change in how the state views this kind of phenomenon? It's a. I, I think there has been a, a general. There has been a shift in, in in discussions on on terrorism, which have attempted to kind of bring in the different kinds of terrorism, different different discussions around it, account for different factors. I, I don't think it's. I think it's it fairly superficial, personally. And I think it's very difficult to to understand that that difference between religious terrorism and, and ideological terrorism. I think there's there's some very sort of strange categorizations that you have that are developing within within policy within within responses towards terrorism. And actually, if you look at a lot of prevent figures, for instance, in the UK, overwhelmingly the the majority now uh, are from sort of mixed ideological backgrounds. Now, there's not a lot of explanation as to what mixed ideological backgrounds means. And, and of course, there's, there's sort of different trends that are going on in, in terms of concerns around violence. But I don't, I, I think a lot of this is cosmetic. And I, I don't think a lot of this really gets to the heart of, of, of processes that are taking place. The, the fact that we have this, this idea of sort of religious terrorism as, as sort of one group and, and ideological terrorism as another group, I think is very problematic. I think a lot of the term, terminology is very difficult to, to, to comprehend and, and to use. And I think that's actually what we're, what we're starting to see. It's, it's not so much a sort of a recognition that there's so many different kinds of, of terrorism and so many different kinds of extremism. It's actually really just, just tackling the fact that so many of these terms are, are so broad and so difficult and so unusable. It seems like uh, with a lot of terrorism that, are, that there's quite a bit of religiously motivated terrorism that is you know derived from some sort of foreign relations issue and quite a lot of the ideologically motivated terrorism is often derived from you know a christian fundamentalism but that's not how they're defined yes yeah i mean it's 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 very interesting how there has been more concern around right-wing terrorism around concerns around the far right um, particularly obviously in 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 western countries and i think that sort of that's that sort of speaks into into that discussion there but i a lot of this is 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 superficial and I, I think there's a lot of concern within those who study long-term processes of counterterrorism and the development of, of countering violent extremism that the focus on the on the far right that's that sort of come in 
is not particularly deep. Um, it's using tools that are not particularly effective, and it's actually just helping to propagate existing counterterrorism policy, which is which is generally focused towards towards Muslims, and is still having having a, a, a hugely disproportionate impact on on Muslims and, and minority communities, on migration from from Middle East and African countries, for instance. And and actually, this this focus on on the far right or this kind of discussion on on the far right. Is not always is not done effectively. Is not done enough, and and certainly there isn't a kind of an understanding of the way in which governments can help to kind of feed in into the development of the far right. How counterterrorism itself and the the securitizing of Muslims can help to feed in to the growth of, of the far right itself. I think there's this big big blind spot that's that's not being addressed properly because it's not really in the interest of a, of a lot of, of of government policy, of course, to examine the role that governments play, that authorities play in exacerbating the growth of the far right, um, particularly in, in Western countries. Well, speaking of the Academy, the Centre for the Analysis of the Radical Right has recently withdrawn an essay by a former Carr scholar which outlined the dangers of anti-fascism. What, if anything, does that incident tell us about counter-terrorism and the Academy? I'm really glad you brought this incident up because I think it's a really, I think it's a really interesting, a really interesting example of of where sort of far right scholarship needs to critically, really critically needs to engage with with some kind of the the critical scholarship, critical terrorism scholarship, critical security scholarship that's that's going on at the moment. Within a lot, you know, it's it's great to see the development of of discussion around the far right of research into into the far right. Um, with regards to with regards to Carr. I think the uh, there's some absolutely fantastic scholars who I know very well, who are great friends and, and great colleagues who work with Carr. Um, and I've always kind of kept my distance slightly from from Carr and, and felt that whilst they they were a part of the sort of the the landscape of of academia and research, there was a lot of problems with within them. And 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 particularly Carr had always sort of from its beginning. It, it had prevent practitioners. It had people very close to governments um, and some very kind of problematic and, and quite controversial policies and and and, and approaches towards counterterrorism. Individuals involved with that were were embedded in the in the heart of CAR from the beginning as, as sort of practitioner fellows. I think that's very that, that that's that's very interesting. That, that obviously this that the publication of this of this car article the impact and the sort of the fallout that that's had that it led to attacks attacks from from the 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 far right um and the radical right on scholars particularly on on young women scholars working in the field it it, it speaks to the danger of having practitioners and and people very much linked and, and involved in government responses to terrorism within the academia because you you end up essentially perpetuating and, and giving a lot of space and, and platform to authority approaches towards counterterrorism, which are not necessarily in the interest of the security of, of the community, but interest in the security of the state. I think you have to be really careful about this. And, and there's been a lot of criticism from critical terrorism scholars towards some approaches towards the far right, because, of course, responses to far right build out of responses towards towards so-called Muslim terrorism, Islamic terrorism, and that there isn't enough critical responses and critical understanding of, of how counterterrorism can interact with the far right, can, can help to, to perpetuate the far right. And we see in this article, we see an article on, you know, within a, a center on, on looking at the radical right, within the sort of CVE field, essentially stoking and enabling processes of, of the far and radical right. 
and that really that, that that has to be understood that has to be um untangled there has to be more kind of discussion between critical scholars and between those looking at the far right and i think because you know governments have been so slow to respond to the far right europe has been so slow to respond to the far right that sometimes when 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 scholars see something happening against the far right in government they're like great this is fantastic we have a response to the far right without without sometimes seeing how this may impact on on minority communities how this might impact on race how this might exacerbate concerns about counterterrorism that exist i think car is a, is a great example of of where that can go wrong and and where more dialogue needs to take place you're listening to Yana Passaran on 3CR, 8.55am, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital on your DAB radio. We're currently talking to Richard McNeil-Wilson about CVE. Richard, would you consider this to be an example of one of the, or one of the outcomes of the uh, securitisation of these sorts of issues? One of the things I'm thinking of in this context is in terms of the relationship between uh, the academy or intellectuals and the state is one of the things that the state or government agencies have that provides a distinct advantage is resources. You know, if you, if you want your research to be funded, well, you have limited avenues through which to pursue uh, financial support. Uh, this places some scholars in a difficult position. But more broadly, there's a kind of, um, it seems to be the case that within the, the academic discourse, one tendency is towards the securitization of discourse, of, of dialogue around these matters. So there's a kind of, on the one level, um, an immediate and a material interest provided to some for exploring uh, approaches to examining these questions, which are more closely aligned to state interest or state security. And on the other, on a broader level, there's a tendency to, I guess, look at a whole range of social issues from a, secur- a securitising perspective. So that's a very long way of saying, can you talk a little bit more about securitisation and how it might impact upon the study of the far right or counterterrorism? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you've done a brilliant job just there. Yeah. And, and I think really summed it up very well. I mean, certainly so much, there's so much resources, as you said, that, that come from, from the state, that come from having this certain kind of security lens, putting this certain security lens on issues. There's encouragement for particularly like young scholars to join groups that may be implicated within, within security and securitization and and i can see you know i can see why and 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 these and of course you know the discussion around car sort of fits broadly within that and certainly it, it has huge implications for for academia and 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 this this has started to be to be to be studied there's a lot of a lot of resources that are pumped in, into security and into into securitization processes and and this has big impacts on 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 academia and it's very difficult, of course, to push against it. It's very difficult to to take a, a non-security approach or, or a counter-securitized approach um, towards towards these issues. And as a result, you you do have the the, the securitization of, of various new different fields and the, and the study of these fields through a policy approach. And there's a great, I mean, there's a there's a there's a great quote which which helps you to kind of rethink the the approach towards violent extremism towards studying terrorism. Rather to, to, to not think yourself as, as a firefighter responding to terrorism, but a student of combustion. So you're trying to understand what the processes are behind, behind terrorism, behind extremism, uh, behind political violence, but not implicate yourself so fully in the process as you are part of the, the firefighting response against it. And I've always tried to kind of center that in, in, in my work and, and understand the processes behind, behind terrorism, but not be drawn too far into into determining what the response should be and, and, and what better policy should be and, and, and become part of that sort of policy-making machine. 
Uh, Richard, you recently published a paper looking at uh, the repression of Crimean Muslims by the Russian state and particularly examining the ways in which the language of counterterrorism and CVE has been appropriated as part of that repression. Could you speak a little bit about what you found when you looked into that? And perhaps also, I think there might be some relevance to uh, recent events, particularly the way in which one of the pretexts for war is the denazification of uh, Ukraine. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yes, I, I recently have a study out in, in um, Intersections, put together some by some great friends of mine, looking at the repression of Crimean Muslim activism in in Russia, it's a very interesting. It's a very timely study, actually, as it as it turns out, far more timely than 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 I would have hoped. And and what it shows, you know, doing lots of research interviews with Crimean activists, pro democracy activists, uh, particularly uh, and, and community activists and and Islamic activists as well, because because Crimea has a as a large uh, Muslim um, Tatar population. The way in which a lot of democracy and democracy um, protests, democracy activism has been repressed in Crimea is through the use of, of counterterrorism and counterextremism by Russian authorities. And again, you, you see that racialization process because, because there's large Muslim communities within Crimea. It's meant that there's been an opportunity by Russian authorities to frame the repression of democracy in Crimea as being part of the war on terror and saying, well, look, here we have these troublemakers. Here we have here we have Muslims. Here we have terrorism going on, um, terrorism against authority. And as a response, we we need to crack down on it. And it's been very difficult for for Western states to to counter some of those lines because, of course, Russia can then say, well, well, look, we're we're countering terrorism. We're concerned about Islamic terrorism just as much as you are, and we're kind of putting these processes in place to 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 stop it. So so. Why are you kind of pushing back against this? And of course, this takes place within within the the wider thread of of, of now the, the 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 ongoing Russian invasion of Ukraine. But we can see how powerful that narrative is of the war on terror and how it's being used by authoritarian states in authoritarian settings, and how it's being wielded against democratic activism in Crimea. Crimean Tatars have, have faced so many different kind of counter-terror-linked repression. They faced administrative prosecution, um, enforced disappearances. They've been incarcerated and 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 subject to sort of counter-terrorism, uh, counter-terrorism training and, and approaches, and 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 put into sort of rehabilitation centres for those who fall under the influence of extremists. So we can see this this language coming through very powerfully. And it's not—it's of course not just a language that's used in in Crimea. It's also used more broadly within within the Russian um, context and, and the invasion of Ukraine. Putin, for instance, cited terrorists and extremists as as a as a reason for for the these current operations, the current full invasion of Ukraine. So much of the discussion around Ukraine, from a Russian point of view, has sought to cast Ukraine, the Ukrainian government. As being beholden to to terrorism and, and extremists, we also, of course, have this discussion on denazification. The concern that that Ukraine is is beholden to Nazi interests or, or is run by Nazi groups, the the influence of uh, the Azov Battalion, for instance, in in Ukrainian in the Ukrainian military, and the implications that has for the Ukrainian state. It's very difficult, of course. These these arguments are very powerful, and 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 they sit within globally entrenched discussions on on the war on terrorism and I, but i think we need to be very careful the 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 impact that discussions on on countering terrorism have on 
on global security, on on the architecture of, of global security. Um, and we can see this. We, we see it being used. We see it used by authoritarian states. We see it being used in, in China, for instance, as well, towards Muslim minorities. And we see it not just in Ukraine, but in, in, to justify various actions by, by Russia against, against foreign states and against foreign governments. It's really important not to kind of fall into, into that discussion and, and that sort of that trap too deeply. Of course, there are, there are elements that, that, that there are concerns about in, in Ukraine. Of, of course, there are, there are groups, um, that, that have some influence in, in Ukraine that have Nazi links, neo-Nazi links. Within context, though, of course, if we're, if we're simply just talking about about Nazis and, and Nazification, I, I mean, certainly there's there's huge concern about Nazi groups in in Russia, and and the, the sort of the international presence of of Nazi groups in Russia as well, the links they have to groups like the Nordic Resistance Movement and neo-Nazi groups in 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 the Nordics, neo-Nazi groups um, in in Italy, elsewhere in Europe, even in the US. Uh, to me, the, the discussion around around the denazification of, of Ukraine, of course, I, like to me, it, it it holds no weight. But it's very interesting, of course, because th- this focus on the on the very far right is often used by states as a way of distracting, a way of distracting from very far right, hard right policies uh, and certain sympathies with with neo Nazi policies or, or or activism. We see this in 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 various different countries. In in Hungary, for instance. There's been a huge kind of crackdown on 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 far right militias as a way of, of excusing um, some of the more hard right articulations of, of the government and, and the populist far right um, articulations of the government. Um, so I think it's it's very important not to kind of be be caught up in in those kind of distractions and to look at the way in which the language of the war and terror now with 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 focus renewed focus on on the far right is being used and being replicated by states as a, as a way of achieving their own ends. Richard, just looking at the practicality of the research you did in Crimea, uh, what are some of the challenges you face when you're you know, trying to interview people who are being actively repressed? It, it's, it's really important, I think. Uh, this sort of speaks to, to another broader question within the field of, of research into terrorism and into extremism. It, it's, it's, it's a very fascinating field because it's one of the few fields where there has been this assumption for a while since its its development, that actually, if you go and you speak to terrorists, if you speak to people labelled terrorists or labelled extremists, actually, what you do, you risk you risk kind of ruining your work. You 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 risk having it uh, swayed by the views of, of extremists and, and terrorists, and and you come up with something kind of not objective and 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 which may kind of help to amplify their views and and and. And there's, there, there, there has been, there has been this kind of, kind of traditional orthodox approach towards terrorism studies where you've been encouraged not to engage with your subject, which I've always found very fascinating and, and tried to push back against. Now, thankfully, there's, there's new kind of new scholars coming through who are very keen to go out and, and speak to those individuals, communities who have been labeled terrorists, labeled extremists and understand those, those processes going on. And, and that's always been at the heart of my work. So I've worked with. Uh, a group called Hizbut Tehrir in the UK, in, in Denmark. They're an Islamic activist group, one of the sort of the first groups in the 50s to come up with the idea of, of the reestablishment of an Islamic state. And of course, within the current context, particularly within the last five years, their work has, has been very problematized. They're a, a nonviolent group, a nonviolent Islamic group, very involved in, in activism, sort of having this very post-colonial critique. But grounded in islamic language and and grounded in the idea that the 
the salve, the response to all of the Middle East's problems is to create a new Islamic state in a peaceful way. And of course, that, that, that kind of runs into discussions around concerns around Islamic state, the decline and fall of Islamic state around jihadi violence and, and international violence. But they've been fascinating to talk to, really interesting to talk to, because they've been able to, to show how they've been responding to, to countering violent extremism, how they've been responding to new policy discussions, how they've been engaging with policymakers, with MPs, how they've been conducting lobbying, despite being an anti-democratic organization. Now, the work in, in Crimea also kind of um, formed a part of this because Hizbut Tehrir had been operating in Crimea, but, and, and, and now since have been operating in, in the rest of Ukraine. But, but have been banned under Russian counterterrorism legislation. So Russia has been using concerns around Hizbut Tehrir to, to clamp down on, on democracy. When talking to, 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 to those individuals, talking to people who are involved in, in Crimean solidarity and in, in pro-democracy movements who have been labeled extremists, been labeled terrorism, it's really important to make sure that you're doing it in, a, in an ethical way, making sure that you're protecting anonymity at every turn making sure that there's no way that individuals can be can be implicated back into into state security and it's a very it's a very difficult thing it, it takes a lot of time it's also difficult to, to to do those in 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 democratic countries in a democratic context of course because you're speaking with individuals who you know you have to be careful in terms of what they say for their protection uh, and and how you report it and, and how you use it there's been instances of uh, researchers having their research confiscated, working in, in a democratic and non-democratic context, um, having their research confiscated by authorities, facing risk by authorities. And actually, one of the things, you know, in looking at all the kind of the ethics around this that obviously I have to do as part of my research, what I found most interesting is that a lot of the way in which risk and ethics are constructed is that there's concern that you might harm your subjects or that your subjects might harm you. Actually, a lot of the risk comes from authorities, both in, in democratic and non-democratic state. It comes from authorities and, and the fact that authorities might try to take your research, might try to find out who those individuals are, uh, might put you at risk and, and might put those who you are interviewing at risk. Uh, Richard, speaking of Hizbut uh, Tahrir, um, one person that springs to mind in that context is Majid Nawaz, and he's uh, become known as a, a former, as someone who's, um, I guess, changed sides or certainly repositioned themselves in terms of public discourse, and they're part of a seemingly uh, larger or growing number of individuals, whether from the Muslim world or outside of it, uh, from the far right and so on, who describe themselves as formers. They're former extremists, former radicals who've decided to take part in, um, you know, uh, countering violent extremism. I was wondering if you had any um, thoughts on the matter of formers and their position within the industry. Are they valuable resources or is this, uh, how do you understand this phenomenon? Um, I, I personally think the role of formers is incredibly problematic. I, I take huge issue with, with the centralization of, of formers. Now, it's not, I, I, this isn't always a very popular opinion, but I really, I, I think a lot of, a lot of, for all the good that, that potential formers might do, I think a lot of harm has been caused, um, by their role within, within the development of counterterrorism and, and countering violent extremism. So just picking up particularly on, on Majid Nawaz and, and, and Hizbut Tehrir. So Hizbut Tehrir, I, I focus on them as part of my, my PhD. I, I researched them in, in the UK and Denmark for my PhD. And I, I did so because 
I think they are an incredibly important chapter in the story of the development of, of counterterrorism and countering violent extremism. Having been around for, for sort of 50 odd years, um, prior to the start of, of, of the war on terror in sort of 2001, 2003, having worked in, in, in lots of different countries. Um, and you have individuals such as Majid Nuaz and various other individuals who are, who were part of Hizbut Tehrir, who as part of the, the, the development of the war on terror at, uh, between the sort of the period 2005 to particularly 2008 essentially sort of flipped flipped sides um if we can if we can talk about sides essentially moved away very quickly from from particularly Hizbut Tehrir in two, 2008 a group of individuals moved away from Hizbut Tehrir and, and looked to to start a response against um against terrorism against concerns about terrorism and extremism it's a very important story because a lot of those individuals who left Hizbut Tehrir, who, you know, these sort of six individuals, uh, six to eight individuals who, who got together in a, in a living room in, in London and, and decided to, to leave HT and, and to go on to, to respond against their concerns against violent extremism. They've been very influential. Individuals um, such as Majid Nuaz, individuals such as Ed Hussein, such as Shiraz Meher, have formed a central component of, of a lot of the counter-extremism work that has gone on since and have helped to develop this idea, particularly Maginot has helped to develop this idea that it's about, that terrorism is about, um, and extremism is about having certain ideas and, and de-radicalization is about rejecting those ideas in favour of liberal democracy, certain values, national values within the UK, British values, um, liberal British democratic values. And that's that's essentially the sort of the antidote to to violent extremism, to to violence, and and that notion has gained a lot of ground within within the UK and and then internationally, and helped to shape a lot of the the de-radicalization work, the counter-extremism work, and has really helped to kind of push this idea that 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 there are certain values that are safe, there are certain values that are extreme, values that particularly sit outside very kind of liberal sort of liberal accepted values, you know, the status quo of, of the state, certain articulations of democracy, nothing too radical, but, but certain articulations of democracy and, and capitalism are the way in which we, we get rid of, of, of terrorism, the way in which we get rid of, of violence. Uh, I, 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 there's so many problems, of course, with this that's, that's led to the securitization of, um, of left-wing groups, led to the securitization of anti-fascist groups, and, and the problematization of, of work that's being done against fascism. It's led to a very kind of liberal conceptualization of how we respond and, and this sort of the ability of, of this both side arguments to, to, to come to the fore that we've seen with, with Carr. And I think it's very important. I think their story needs to be told. I'm, I'm, there's more sort of publications and research that, that I'll, I'll be doing soon that will be coming out looking at that process of development from this kind of group of individuals that, that split off from Hizbut Tehrir and helped to drive a lot of the, the, the counter-terrorism and the counter-extremism, counter particularly the de-radicalization narrative, forwards. I, I think formers occupy a, a quite a high status, and, and certainly some of those individuals, such as Maginuaz, immediately helped to gain status by marketing themselves as being former extremists and former radicals, you know, making, making kind of great play of, of, of what they're up to beforehand and, 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 and helping to drive their own, you know, their own ideas um, or grinding their own axes 
within the context of 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 a, of a fast developing policy and, and new policies coming through, uh, which really kind of took the lead from from formers. So I I, I think we we have to be incredibly careful um, in ascribing former extremists and um, this sort of this high role um, within the development of policy within academia. We, we of course all know the direction that Magic Noirs has taken since COVID-19. But but those of us who have had a critical eye on, on counterterrorism and have been concerned about the development of terrorism saw exactly the same processes happening through Magic Noirs far, far earlier. And I, I think just, you know, the, the, the COVID-19 crisis and the way in which he has certainly amplified some very concerning theories and, and statements um, on, on huge public platforms really is is just a, another angle of 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 concern um, that we <laughs> that we have around formers such as Majid Nawaz. so i i think i think we have to be really careful with the role that we ascribe towards formers i think there's there's been far too much lauding of of their work we we need to put in the kind of the gritty groundwork and and we need to have a level of detachment from from policy in order to kind of to understand what's what's going on and 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 to understand processes around violence Richard, just finally, speaking of the novel coronavirus, you uh, published some work uh, towards the beginning of the pandemic looking at uh, how far-right actors were responding to COVID-19 at that beginning and the the different ways in which it was framed. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about what you found through that research and also have you seen a shift in the way that COVID-19 is framed by the far-right since you published that research? Sure, absolutely. I I think the the research... At the start of the the, the COVID nineteen pandemic that that I did, looking at at the far right and the way in which the far right are, are responding to COVID nineteen, was again born. It was born out of frustration of of some of the discussions that I saw, particularly within policy, um, who kind of picked up on 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 these ideas that that the far right were using and and very much grounded in in misinformation. You know, I remember. I don't, I don't know if you remember at the start of the the COVID nineteen pandemic. We had these incredible statements sort of coming out from from those involved in in counterterrorism policy and, and practice, saying that Nazis were going to sort of cough into spray bottles and and run into synagogues and 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 spray Jewish worshippers with with the COVID COVID virus, or that the far right was sort of targeting infrastructure and 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 taking down five G towers and, and these sorts of things. Now, it's such an interesting uh, um, case study because. The concern around counterterrorism was was focused on the far right spreading the virus, but as as we know in Europe, it wasn't the far right that was spreading the virus. It was actually the government that was doing a very good job of not particularly putting in very good responses towards towards COVID nineteen. Especially in in the UK, you sort of saw some very sort of poor responses to to the threat of the virus. Whilst at the same time, you were having language from from prevent practitioners about the concerns of 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 Nazis, you know running into synagogues and, and coughing. So I think that's a very interesting sort of, you know, tale and analogy about about how the state views terrorism and actually a lot of the concern that, that we need to think about really comes from the state in, in terms of the violence that it carries out. But also there's it's it's very quickly very quickly there was this focus on misinformation in the far right. And actually what I was seeing, you know, when I was hanging around on 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 Telegram when I was kind of looking at, at, at some of the, the statements that were coming out from from far right, it, it wasn't so much focused on on misinformation. Actually, a lot of the the focus of, of the language, at least in the initial stages from the far right, 
was very much focused on on where the government had gone wrong and, and why hadn't the government put in harder restrictions and why is the government not not tackling COVID-19 properly. And this was coming from, from far-right groups in, in, in all different countries in, in Europe that I was looking at. And this was very interesting because this was counter to the assumptions that we had where even at the time we were thinking far-rights, far-right groups were not interested in lockdown, they were interested in spreading misinformation. And there was an assumption within counter-terrorism and, and, and counter-terror communities that the far right just kind of wanted to spread pandemonium and, and, and wanted as much COVID as possible because it kind of creates chaos without thinking that actually COVID-19 also created problems for, for far right groups in terms of their activism as well. It also prevented their activists from, from coming together and, and, and it, and it showed the need for, for state responses and international responses to the spread, the spread of a, a virus and, and the spread of a pandemic. Um, so I think it's really important to kind of make sure that, that, that we, we challenge some of the assumptions that we, we may instantly have about, about groups and about how they respond to different crises. Um, and of course, with, with sort of various global crises that we have going on, it's, it's very important to kind of critically reflect on, on, on how different groups are responding and, and, and challenge those assumptions by looking at, at, at what, they're, what they're saying. In terms of response since, it's, it's not, I, I haven't done an awful lot of research looking at kind of, of how those processes have changed, how far right groups have changed. But I think it's, it's really important that we, you know, that we make sure that we take assumptions and particularly assumptions that are, that are stated from, from government, from authorities and, and challenge them and look into them and make sure that we have some kind of engagement with, with primary source material from those groups to sort of see how, how they're, how they're responding and how they're acting. Well, Richard, I think we will leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us. If people want to find you on Twitter, you are at McNeil Wilson. That's uh, Neil with one L, Wilson with two. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. It's been fantastic. It's been really nice to meet you both. Well, Andy, that's all we've got time for. Global Intifada is up next. We'll catch you next week. See you then. Let's
have a few children's picture books or footy boots that your kids have outgrown but want to find them a loving home? Well, drop them in at 3CR and put them in the Books and Boots bin. Books and Boots regularly sends pre-loved children's picture books and sports footwear to remote and regional First Nations communities and children across the country. Contact us at Books and Boots or go to the website www.booksandboots.org.au We love a good book. 